Sunday Presents with me, Kira Maloney. And me, Dean Buckley. The Sunday Presents is a podcast where each episode I will make Dean watch a favorite film of mine that he's never seen or vice versa. Lately, mostly vice versa. But today, <laughs> verse visa. <laughs> you finally got to pick after a long time not picking. I will say in fairness that the reason you didn't get to pick was because you kept delaying the Tenacious D episode. <laughs> And so look, this really was a hell of your own making. Look, the the Tenacious D episode, it, w- it was like our Chinese democracy, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But for no reason. <laughs> and, and, and now that it's out, much like Chinese democracy, uh, no one cares. <laughs> Remember when that finally came out and just no one cared? Amazing. What are, what are the greats of all time? <laughs> This isn't episode necessarily related. More, I'm just saying it to you while we're recording in case I want an excuse for sh- being shit. But you're getting a very sleepy Dean today. Last couple of days, I just haven't been able to to shake the the morning sleepiness. So, and uh, just letting you know in advance. That's like a like a medical accommodation. Me- the medical accommodation in this case is you can't be mad at him. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Just to be clear, I'm not just like. A sleepy guy. I mean, I am, but like, it's chronic. Like, I, I'm chronically sleepy. I'm clinically limp-wristed. These are my ailments. <laughs> that actually does a good job transitioning to what the movie is. <laughs> More than you'd think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that movie is one of my favorites of all time, which I know is the premise of this show, but like, really, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Midnight Cowboy. Everybody's talking about me. Yeah. Yeah. Midnight Cowboy came out in 1969, directed by John Schlesinger. I think it might be a soft S. I think it might be a Schlesinger, but I... It could be. It could be. But regardless, um, it won... <laughs> he probably it won... won an Oscar, so I'll pull a fucking clip. He did, he did win an Oscar for Midnight Cowboy. The winner is John Schlesinger from That makes Which sense. Which one, in addition to Best Director, also won Best Picture. It's the only X-rated film to win Best Picture, which is mostly because they hadn't decided what X-rated meant yet, <laughs> which we'll discuss later. And stars John Voight and Dustin Hoffman, neither of whom I would describe as great dudes. Yeah, yeah. But very good actors. Yeah, John John Voight certainly was in his day anyway. I, I, I wouldn't... I know he's got his his Emmy noms for Ray Donovan or whatever, but I don't want to assume that those are merited. Emmy nominations are very rarely merited, and also has anyone ever watched Ray Donovan to check? No, certainly no. Under forty, maybe it's great. Maybe it's the best show in the world. But Dean, please tell us about Ray Donovan. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, Dean... so Lee Schreiber is a Hollywood fixer called Ray is that Donovan. What that's about? Yeah, and okay. he's sleeping. See, I started watching the first episode of Ray Donovan one time, and then I was like, this is complete <laughs> shit, and turned it off. So Ray Donovan is Hollywood fixer played by Lev Schreiber, and he's sleeping with, <laughs> I don't know, a 16-year-old or something, and then I turned it off. He has some annoying brothers, and his dad just got out of jail. His dad's John Voice. There, that's Ray Donovan, as far as I know. Okay, now that that's out of the way, (laughs) can you please tell us a little bit about Midnight Cowboy? I sure can. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. Midnight Cowboy opens on a blank drive-in theater screen in Bumfuck, Texas, presumably. They don't actually give a name, but that's the impression. 
local boy Joe Buck, played by John Voice, has decided he's heading to New York to become a gigolo. They never say gigolo in the film. They say hustler, but that means something different now. So for clarity, I'm saying he's moving to New York to become a gigolo. The first like 10 minutes of the movie, and I say this as high praise, is just Joe going around town telling people he's going to New York, being visibly disappointed that they don't give a fuck that he's leaving, and then riding the bus to New York where he gets a room in the Hotel Claridge overlooking Times Square. Dean, Dean, what is he wearing? At all moments in this film, and I genuinely, truly mean all moments, except for like a couple of, you know, when he's just getting out of bed with a woman, this man is wearing cowboy boots. He's wearing a big fucking hat. He's got his, I don't know what you call it, but that cowboy shirt that has the frills around the collar. This is a cowboy from Texas. He clarifies anytime anyone asks that he's not really a cowboy because being a cowboy is like an actual job that you can still have. And so it's not accurate for it, but he's a cowboy though. And yeah, he gets a a room in overlooking Times Square. And because he's such a smart boy, if there's one thing we can agree on about Joe Buck, he's a very smart man. He he, he, he enacts his brilliant plan to become the most successful gigolo in New York, which is to just sort of wander around looking for middle-aged women and then... (laughs) approaching them and asking them if they can help him get to the Statue of Liberty. He's looking to go to the Statue of Liberty and somehow parlay this into a conversation that will result in them sleeping together and him getting money. He fails so often, but he finally pulls it off with a lady called Cass. (laughs) Unfortunately, he is so both self-obsessed and dim-witted that he fails to notice that Cass is herself clearly the kept woman of a rich guy and he is very easily conned by her into... Not only not getting paid for having sex with her, he actually gives her $20 for a taxi. In a film where later on, Dustin Hoffman's character will get $1 for a taxi. (laughs) Just for inflationary purposes, I thought that was important to to clarify. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And uh, can I just say, later on when Dustin Hoffman's character gets the $1 for a taxi, it seems like he's haggled up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, hard cut from him getting conned out of $20 by the first woman he could sleep with to a bar where Joe is drinking next to Enrico Salvatore Rizzo, a.k.a. Rico to his friends. He doesn't have any friends, uh, so everyone calls him Ratso. Terrific shirt. Are you speaking to me? Well, I was just admiring that colossal shirt. I mean, that is one hell of a shirt. I bet you paid a pretty price for it, am I right? Oh, I ain't cheap. And he's played by Dustin Hoffman. He's this greasy, disheveled little man. He has a limp. He has an annoying voice. And he is my heart and soul. Rico says he can set Joe up with a pimp. Because that's what he really needs. He needs somebody to to do the the financials and the booking and the admin stuff for him. And so he says he's set him up with a pimp called O'Daniel. Set him up with management. (laughs) Management. That's right. That's the phrase he uses. And he takes him across town to meet... What he says is a pimp called O'Daniel. Unfortunately for Joe, uh, once Rico has left with his $20 fighter's fee that Rico negotiated with him, he discovers that O'Daniel is in fact a religious nut who is trying to save the souls of sex workers, not hire them. And Joe Joe leaves uh, in quiet temper after O'Daniel tries to get him to pray to the Virgin Mary who is hanging on the back of O'Daniel's bathroom door. I prayed in the streets. I prayed in the saloons. I prayed in the toilets. It don't matter where, so long as he gets that prayer. Shit! Joe gets thrown out of the Hotel Clarge for not paying his bills because he has been... I'll do it. uh, ...spending or getting conned out of all his money and they keep all his stuff because that's what hotels do which is kind of fucked up well he'll get it back if he if he pays his bill yeah but he's not he doesn't (laughs) not happening uh he tries to make some quick money by letting a young bob balaban of all people suck his dick during a screening of 2001 a space odyssey now joe has been very bothered by any suggestion that he is a homosexual or even willing to take work from homosexuals throughout the film. And he's very uncomfortable during this, this blowjob scene. And he's furious afterwards when young Bob Balaban reveals 
that he was lying about having money and that he doesn't have anything to pay Joe with. And Joe lightly threatens him, uh, but then ultimately leaves. Anyway, Joe, as he's, you know, walking around trying to figure out how, just figure something out, anything out, spots Rico through, I think, like the window of a cafe or something, and he goes in to confront him, and somehow this confrontation <laughs> turns into him taking on Rico as his manager, and Rico taking him back to the squat where he lives, and they become roommates, and eventually best friends, <laughs> because Rico is a very good con man, and Joe Buck is very dumb. And these two boys, you know, they live in their squalor. It's a condemned building. Yeah, they they try to work together. It turns out that two heads are not that much better than one, uh, especially because like one of the heads is jokes. Yeah, like Rico is does this has this whole brilliant thing where they basically like steal a booking from a high end escort service at a. I don't think they really have these anymore, but they used to have hotels that were like just for women and stuff. And the idea is they get one good customer there. Word of mouth spreads, even just in that building, they're basically set up for the foreseeable future. And Joe, like, Rico gets him all the way to the door, and then it's cross-cut with Rico. Rico has this whole thing about moving to Florida, because he's got, like, some sort of respiratory illness. And if there's one thing you know about Americans, they think that being in Florida can cure a respiratory illness. So he has this, like, cross-cutting fantasy where he's, like, imagining his ideal life in Florida while he's watching Joe completely fuck up the plan and get thrown out of the hotel. What's his ideal life in Florida like? It's the Copacabana. I don't know. He's like, <laughs> he he's the permanent resident host of a 24-hour party. He's like showing the chefs at the buffet how it's done, like <laughs> throwing extra ingredients into their serving dishes. And, and he has a cowboy hat in his fantasy, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I should probably say, because there's no like natural way place to put it really, as well as cross-cutting with Rico's fantasies earlier in the film and throughout the film, where there's cross-cutting with these flashbacks of Joe's, and you get the basic outline of his life, that he was like abandoned by his mother, grew up raised by his grandmother, and that if they don't necessarily say exactly that his grandmother sexually abused him, then he definitely went through experiences with his grandmother that were sexually traumatic. And he was in love with a girl called Annie. And there was some sort of violent incident involving, it seems like she got raped while he watched and she ended up in a mental hospital. And Joe never talks about any of this shit. Like never. We only we are privy to it. We'll, we'll talk about this more later because it is, it is very unclear like exactly what happened. But I think that... When Annie was raped, he was also raped. Yeah, was he? Uh, it's my impression, but it's it is very unclear exactly what happened. And yeah, and he never talks about it. And it's also mixed in with like his dreams and stuff. Yeah, because like it, for example, in that specific scene, the scene with him and Annie, it starts. He first he's constantly hearing her say, "You're the only one." Joe but then as it morphs he starts to see Rico in the crowd and then she starts saying he's the only one and the the line between memory and fantasy and dream and stuff are a bit slippery in these moments so Rico and Joe are hanging out at a cafe bemoaning their continued lack of success when there's supposed to be sort of like I guess a parody of like Andy Warhol and Edie Sedgwick or something like 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 it's 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 the factory people it's people from Warhol's the factory but they can't say that because Andy Warhol was still alive <laughs> and the factory was still operating and they didn't want to get in trouble I assume but it's the factory and even like literally the 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 woman who comes and like gives them a flyer because they want Joe Buck at their party that's literally Viva of the Warhol superstars there's there's a, a bunch of Warhol superstars in the sequence yeah and then they go to a party that's at the factory, but not at the factory. And Rico is mostly focused on trying to steal as much food as possible, bring home. Like, he's just cramming plates covered in salami into his pants. Meanwhile, Joe unintentionally gets fucking monged off his face because he thinks he's being passed a cigarette and he starts smoking a joint instead. And then at some point, I think he, he's given some, like, pills as well. Mm -hmm. And he's just off his face, 
for the whole party while Rico is people keep crowding him they it's he, they find him very interesting and he wishes they would stop touching him that's the main thing that Rico has going on at the party I gotta sit down I feel crummy what's the matter with take you? your hands off of me why don't you run out and use my shout why don't you take a walk just take your hands off of me don't touch me just take a walk take a shave I'm just going to lick the sweat well, just get your hands you off of me well you look hot eventually Joe meets this woman who looks like both Edie Sedgwick and Liza Minnelli. And Rico, I guess, negotiates $20 for the night with Joe and a dollar taxi fare for himself, which she is very annoyed about that extra dollar. (laughs) Just as, like, she and Joe are heading down to her apartment, Rico falls down this really long flight of stairs and then says he's fine and leaves. And Joe goes in to, you know, have sex with her and he can't get it up. And he's like, this has never happened to me before. And he's very insistent that this has literally never happened before. Like, this is the this is actually the first time it's failed in. And then to uh, pass the time until they try again, I guess, they play... Is it called scrimmage or scribbage? I believe it's called scribbage. Okay, because this is not a game known to me. It's also a game not known to me. It involves... Throwing dice that have letters on them and then whatever letters are face up, you have to spell words out of that and they have to connect uh, anyway. The the actual spelling of the words is like seems similar to Scrabble. Yes. And while they're playing, like the next word that Joe has to make has to end in Y and she starts giving examples like lay to be suggestive. And then she works her way around to saying gay. And at the accusation that he might be gay, Joe gets furious and erect, and he finishes the job. Afterwards, Joe heads back to the squat and finds Rico is in really, really bad shape. He's had this cough this whole time, and it has been getting slowly worse, and then he you know, fell down the fucking stairs, but it's getting really bad now. And Rico says he doesn't want a doctor, he doesn't want anyone to come see him, he just wants to go to Florida. I don't think I can walk anymore. I mean, I've been falling down a lot. I'm scared. What are you scared of? You know what they do to you when when they know you can't. When they find out that you can't walk. Oh, Christ. So Joe sets out into the night to try and get together the money to go to Florida. He manages to pick up a like middle-aged, he's referred to as a pastor at one point, so I'm guessing he's some sort of like Protestant priest or whatever, who's in, t- who's in the city for the night and manages to get back to his room. But then the guy gets a phone call from his mother. And then after the phone call, he's unwilling to have sex with Joe anymore. And Joe's like, but I need the money. And the guy gives him $10. And Joe's like, I need more than $10. And the guy says, that's all I have. And then Joe starts hitting him and, you know, gets the drawer open and gets out the money and then the phone is still off the hook and i assume that somebody down the the lobby or something could hear because i don't think it was his mother i think it was like an operator or something The, the guys are saying i wasn't trying to call anyone first into the receiver and then to joe but joe doesn't believe him and then joe sticks the phone in his mouth and we don't see it but i think it's safe to presume the guy choked on the phone and joe killed him he gets the money, though. He gets, takes all the money out of the guy's wallet. And he gets Rico on a bus to Florida. R- Rico's, like, had a bad leg this whole time. He's not able to really walk anymore, just carry him. And while they're on the bus, Rico wets himself and is really humiliated about it. But Joe pops into a shop when the bus stops and buys them both new clothes. He's finally out of the cowboy gear. He's wearing just, like, kind of a, a nice neutral shirt. And he gets uh, Rico a colorful Hawaiian shirt. And he's talking to Rico about how, you know, he needs to give up this hustling life. There's got to be better ways to make money. And then the camera pulls out from his face and you can just see Rico next to him. And he's obviously dead. And Joe, you know, gets the attention of the bus driver who like confirms he's dead and says, there's nothing much we can do, but just continue on into Miami. They're like right outside their destination. And uh, yeah, the film ends as Joe sit next, sits next to Rico's cooling body as they wa- and he watches out the window the the palms and the sun as they finally get to florida okay folks nothing to worry about just a little illness we'll be in miami in just a few minutes 
Don't get on a bus with Dustin Hoffman. That's the lesson of the 1960s on film. <laughs> I'm I'm joking around to distract myself from my my deep heartache. Yeah. Yeah, it's I had a very vaguest idea of what Midnight Cowboy was about. And there were scenes that I in the in the climax to do with the sort of deterioration of Rico's condition and their relation and their growing relationship, like the bit where Rico's all sweaty, so Joe untucks his shirt to wipe his head and tries to help him comb his hair. Or later, when he's saying he's he asked Joe not to call a doctor because of what they do to you when they find out you can't walk. That that's like one of the one of the greatest line deliveries ever. I knew from you about these scenes. I think you've. You definitely wrote about Midnight Cowboy in our first year in films that didn't come out this year. Maybe some other stuff as well. But I still was not prepared for how desperately, desperately sad this film is. I want to mention very quickly that your um, your decision to, in your summary, call him Rico. Big thumbs up from me, firstly. But he's almost always referred to as Ratso, both in the movie and in people talking about the movie. And I'm not like offended if people call him Ratso or whatever because he's not a real person. But he so wants people to call him Rico so much. And like it's one of the very last things he says on screen. I'm Rico all the time, okay? We're going to tell all these new people my name's Rico. Okay. Even Joe, who's like his closest friend, doesn't start calling him Rico consistently until they're on that bus. Other than it's almost always Ratso with him. Yeah, no, I did I did make that choice consciously in the same way that I call him Frankenstein's creature, you know? <laughs> it's about, about the underlying humanity. Yeah, yeah. It's a great movie. Let's get that out of the way. Yeah! It's phenomenal. Yeah! Isn't it the best? It is. I can't remember if I left it in the edit, but you made a joke last time about me um, saying that it hasn't aged well, because apparently that's a thing people say that is about Midnight Cowboy. Anyone who says that can fuck off and die. Like, that's... I, I mean, I wouldn't say it that way, just... But that, that, you're 100% correct. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Does this Roger Ebert review of it? It's like a retrospective review from the 90s when it was re-released. And he basically talks about how the ver- like people just remembered the good parts of Midnight Cowboy, like have it like edited in their minds. Mm. So here's here's like a quote. Uh, John John Schlesinger was not willing to tell their story with the simplicity I think it required. He took these two magnificent performances and dropped them into a trendy, gimmick-ridden exercise in fashionable cinema. The ghost of the swinging 60s haunts Midnight Cowboy and it robs it of the timelessness it should possess. And not for the first time on this podcast or in live will I say, fuck you, Roger Ebert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Roger Ebert, but you know. I say fuck you to my friends all the time. Why wouldn't I say to Roger Ebert? Exactly, exactly, (laughs) exactly. Well, the the thing that people most complain about is the Andy Warhol party thing. And yeah. on my last watch before this, I did think that that was the weakest part of the movie. But rewatching it this time, I feel like it's like the key to the whole movie and it's perfect. Yeah, yeah, I agree. The different receptions that the characters get there is so pointed. Yes, and but also like how it how it exposes like the distance between like arty types who sort of play act at being outside society and yeah. people who are actually outside society by yeah. extremely not by choice and how the latter exploits the former which also makes the film kind of a self-critique. Yeah. of its yeah. own existence. So it reminded me almost of like the end of Killers of the Flower Moon. I was just thinking in that yeah. respect, like it's it's both a film that is so incredibly empathetic towards like people at the at the most fringe of of society. That yeah. also is like, but just so you know, this is this is like the slick version of this. This yeah. is like this isn't real. Because what's real is even more horrible. 
Yeah. That Ebert thing about it being like too situated in the 60s is very interesting to me that that was written in the 90s. Because <laughs> for me, a story about a sex worker and a con man living homeless in New York feels very contemporary. <laughs> yeah. Scenes of, of yeah. buildings yeah. getting demolished in New York where homeless people are squatting and, and, and they're getting just leveled to make way for the next New York. There is something really interesting about it as like a movie about homelessness in this because it's not a movie about homelessness like it's not like an issue movie about homelessness yeah yeah it just treats homeless people as characters as worthy of being the stars of a movie as anybody else yes yes and not vehicles for you know wow you should care so much about homeless people after watching this movie no you should care about homeless people anyway yeah let the movie (laughs) be a movie yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. I noted that it was the Hotel Claridge that Joe stays in at the start of the movie because the Hotel Claridge was demolished two, two or three years after this film came out and was replaced by 1500 Broadway, which is, if you've ever seen on in movies or TV on Times Square, a building with two news tickers on the front of it... <sighs> That's 1500 Broadway. Oh my God. It's where Good Morning America is is filmed. It's uh, uh, along with uh, its office space has, you know, a lot of other Disney offices and a smorgasbord of evil PR and investment firms. And of course, the official newspaper of the CCP's propaganda department, China Daily. So just Of course. <laughs> just an incredibly evil building has taken has taken its place. If money is evil, then that building is hell. This is the most obnoxious group of money-hungry, low-IQ, high-energy, jackrabbit, fucking wannabe, big-time, small-time, shit-talking, bothersome, irritating bunch of motherfuckers I have ever had to endure for more than five minutes. This this film does really encapsulate, like, how... And this is a shift that has happened, like, all over the world, but, like, city centers going from being places where poor people live to being places where businesses are and if you're poor they'll shoot you in the head or whatever yeah 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 like it's kind of like not the last gasp of of that but but something i don't know i love that it's a it's a leaving your small town to go to new york and follow your dream movie where the dream is being a sex worker (laughs) yeah i just find that so funny at the start of the film, as far as I can tell, he he he's a dishwasher at potentially multiple establishments. I can't quite tell if they're just cutting from different people at this one establishment or it's multiple establishments, but they're they're all like Where's that Joe Buck? Where's that Joe Buck? Where's that Joe Buck? While Joe Buck is back in his shitty little apartment getting dressed and ready. The thing about Joe, like, there's so there's so many other times where I'm like, of course he would dress as a cowboy. In this context. And eventually, they're the only clothes he has, pretty much. Yeah. Because his stuff gets t- taken by the Hotel Claridge. But wearing that outfit, the whole 30-hour bus to New York. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about Joe is... Like, Joe is so dumb. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. This, Joe's got a lot going on, and we barely glimpse it. And... It's my understanding that in the novel they just like straight up like tell you stuff in a way that sounds shit. But I love how like the flashbacks are so impressionistic and fleeting so that you're never like mm-hmm. fully sure of what actually happened. And the way the movie is structured, it's almost like you're waiting for there to be like the full flashback, you yeah. know? Yeah. Like in most movies you would have these these brief glimpses of flashbacks and then you would have the full flashback where you have like at least a scene but you just have yeah. you only get these moments and they're mixed in with things that can't be memories in a way that yeah. is well both it's really evocative of just like how actual remembering things work definitely <laughs> but also i just i just find it very beautiful and compelling and i love the ambiguity of it yeah, I like how um, Joe's flashes are blue tinted and Rico's are like gray, right? They're definitely tinted different colors anyway. 
And yeah, like like we were saying earlier in terms of the nature of Joe's relationship with his grandmother and whether or not he himself was raped by that gang, there's, there is that bit where it's cross-cutting between what seems like him, something being forced into him basically by yeah. the people attacking him and Annie and these memories of getting an enema from his grandmother. And, you know, an enema is in principle something that couldn't be a medical treatment. There's no reason to assume necessarily that that was part of his grandmother's abuse and it doesn't necessarily fit into if you wanted to try and draw a pattern from what we see of her but it was still clearly very traumatic mm. for joe like yeah. his grandmother his grandmother i think it's safe to say is implied to be have been a sex worker herself with gentleman callers and new boyfriends and and the like yeah yeah and is very physically affectionate with joe in a way that like i mean they don't like show I did, you, you know, you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, like the very first, I think, memory of her that's uh, certainly the first that's more than a few seconds is him like massaging her neck mm-hmm. at like a parlor, a beauty parlor or something. And she's like moaning. It's very, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then later we see a couple of scenes of her in bed with like a John and the young Joe who must be all of like seven or eight, like in bed with them and not implying that they, he's been party to anything, but just like, just like snuggled up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like the, the thing about it is that even, even describing those moments feels like putting too fine a point on it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, it definitely. is so brief and, and like all that stuff that's going on with Joe, we, do, we just don't get, even even though we're literally seeing inside his head, it's not for us to know. Yeah, it's it's for us to see, and that's all we get. And even those, like, we're talking about these specific bits, but even those bits are, like, like him in bed with, with his grandmother and the John will be, like, cut in a montage that also has him, like, running through a field because he's a young yeah. boy in rural Texas, you know? Yeah. It'll be cut yeah. with loads of innocuous stuff because it's all just this kind of stew of different memories melding together just for for informational purposes mostly mm-hmm. so uh when this came out in 1969 the rating system was still pretty new because they had the haze code which was just like censorship of you're not allowed show blah 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 blah. uh and it was replaced with the rating system and midnight cowboy was rated x on its initial release which in later years is a rating that would be predominantly bordering on exclusively associated <laughs> with pornography. It was initially actually going to be given an or rating, but after consulting with a psychologist, executives at United Artists were told to accept an X rating due to the homosexual frame of reference and its possible influence upon youngsters. Yeah, that sounds that sounds so do right. You, do you want to talk about the homosexual frame of reference? I mean, I think I covered it all in the summary. Like, there's actually not that much, apart from, like, the the constant homoeroticism between Rico and Joe, like, the actual, like, instances of homosexuality in this film are relatively few. So, on one hand, I agree. And on the other hand, I think that you would have to watch this movie with your eyes closed to not... I'm overstating. I mean, he, meet, he meets Rico in what is clearly a gay bar. I'm retroactively even more confused and annoyed than I already was very confused and annoyed about uh, everyone who called Moonlight the first LGBT Best Picture winner. Yeah. And yeah. I'm I'm classing that in my mind alongside people called Kamala Harris the first vice president of color because they just didn't check and assumed that that must be true. Yeah. It's not like gay if you read between the lines it's just a it's a gay movie like yeah. full stop uh, and even if you we leave aside everything that's going on with joe which is like most of what the movie is about rico is clearly gay and never even denies being gay when joe when joe says you don't look like no fake and and rico says what's that supposed to mean an absolute classic thing for a gay person to say <laughs> just yeah they should put that on the pride flag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah, Rico's constantly calling people. Faggots. And yeah, and meets Joe in a gay bar. Certainly appears to be a gay bar. 
There's an awful lot of clearly gay and or trans people in that bar yeah. for it to be a regular bar. <laughs> yes, yeah. And, and it's not all a fucking those... sports bar, I'll tell you that. And all of those gay and or trans people know Rico. They're the yeah. only characters we see in the movie who know him. They're like yeah. his community. Yeah. I'm not, and they hate him. Yeah, 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 yeah. They yeah. think he's the worst, but they know him. Yeah, yeah. And relatedly, I mentioned in the previous episode that John Wayne called Midnight Cowboy a perverse movie about two f***s. But I did notice this time around that Midnight Cowboy shot first because Joe (laughs) says, John Wayne, you want to tell me he's a fag? And Rico pointedly does not answer. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, and I mean, who's to say? Who's to, say? Who's to say? He he certainly did a lot of collabs with a man who Maureen O'Hara said liked making out with dudes. It should probably be noted, I guess, that John Schlesinger was noted gay, homosexual. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is probably why he, or like at least in part, why he wasn't weird about it. Yeah, yeah. Also, p- possibly a reason why he made an American movie at all, because, you know, as bad as it was to be a gay man in the late 60s and 70s in America, it was a lot fucking better than being a gay man in the UK at the same time. A lot fucking better. Yeah, the the thing about Rico and Joe is that they're married. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They just, when Rico, like, made some dinner and stuff, mm-hmm. and and he's so... The like ungrateful husband, <laughs> and Rico's so the like wife who's been slaving over the the pot all day. Yeah, and it just I mean it carries through their relationship in general, where Rico is like constantly working his ass off to try and get him and Joe past the next fucking day, <laughs> and Joe is completely oblivious. R- Rico steals like a like a big coat, and Joe is like giving out to him about stealing it. And he goes, I stole it for you. Yeah. It's too big for me. <laughs> and there's definitely like a Vladimir Nestrogon quality. Yeah. Yeah. From hit play waiting for Gatto. Yeah. Which is also about two guys in poverty who are married. And I, I was weirdly <laughs> thinking of the vibe between um, Charlton Heston and Edward G. Robinson and Soylent Green. where They're clearly a May December <laughs> A couple, but I don't think Charlton Heston knew. <laughs> this was a cop. This is a cop and his 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 live-in partner. Matt Saldersheim mentioned on Twitter once, and it's one of my favorite moments in the movie. But when Joe and Ratso see each other again for the first time after Rico sent him to to see O'Daniel, uh, the first time they see each other after that, they they both grin like they're so happy just to see somebody <laughs> yeah yeah and like a second passes and then they remember that they're mad at each other yeah yeah and it's it's great little beat voight and hoffman are an incredible duo as well as rico and joe just like classic short guy tall guy yeah classic short guy tall guy classic non-ethnic white and ethnic white <laughs> Fucking Joe Buck and Enrico Salvatore Rizzo, the most Italian man who has ever existed. And Dustin Hoffman's voice, the voice he puts on for Rizzo is amazing. We should talk quickly about, I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. So like the legend goes that this was an ad lib of Hoffman's when they were crossing the street in that scene because the the scene is actually really specifically timed so that they never have to stop walking as they cross intersections in the middle of New York. And apparently in an early draft in that scene, Rico pretends to get hit by a car and then, you know, tries to get money out of it. Insurance, blah, blah, blah. In the actual scene, as it happens, the taxi clips him by surprise and he yells out the famous, the famous line uh, and then says, you know, that's not actually not actually a bad way to make some money off the insurance. 
And the legend goes that that was completely ad-libbed, but then it was in the script that something similar happened. Hoffman's official explanation is that it wasn't scripted, but it wasn't unforeseen that this might happen. (laughs) He said he wanted to say, we're making a movie here, but he didn't want to break character. So he said the lines he did say, and thus into film history and basically the whole pop cultural image of New York (laughs) <laughs> I'm walking here. Hey, I'm walking here. Hey, I'm walking here. I'm walking. You fuck your butter. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. Hey, I'm walking here. Hey, I'm walking here. Well, I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I mean, I'm not. I'm crouching the elevator shaft, but hey, I'm walking here. <laughs> hey, I'm landing here. I'm gliding here. Hey, watch out. I'm swinging here. In in the context of the movie, that line's actually because Rico not great at the old walk and yeah. eventually not able to do it at all. And it's a yeah. very significant thing for him. And so that line is like weirdly poignant, mm. like retrospectively, like kind of juxtaposed with, you know, what they do to you when you... When they find out you can't walk. And also in that line, in that scene where he says, you know what they do to you when they find out you can't walk. I was struck this time by him saying, because Joe wants to go get a doctor. And the way that he says, no cops, no doctors. Mm -hmm. Like they're both in the same category of like. People who might lock me up. Yeah, yeah. The cops might will lock me up for squatting. The doctors will lock me up for not being able to walk. On the, 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 the dispute about how ad-libbed or whatever it was for me the fact that Justin Hoffman while not breaking character clearly breaks voice (laughs) and just starts (laughs) yelling full Justin Hoffman at the guy leads me to believe it was not planned I have to say (laughs) but it's it it doesn't break the illusion or anything Rico Rico talking like this the whole film and then getting mad one time and turning into bellowing Justin Hoffman is is perfect another time with his voice when he's sending Joe into the hotel for women and he says like, watch the call. And it's like the exact same way that he says, don't go too far now in Kramer vs. Kramer. When the kid's <laughs> cycling away on the bike. It's it's uh, like, and, it, and it's like, oh, oh. Yeah. Oh. It does strike me as interesting that this is a British director making this film. You know, you don't want to be reductive about it, but there is something about like him having enough distance from america to actually see it clearly yeah he's he's not like trapped in the propaganda of the american dream and stuff yeah and i think that's particularly almost particularly striking with the the factory scene because being able to like so incisively portray and call out purely by portraying the like poverty tourism of that whole scene and the way it exploited people who are actually on the margins like one of my favorite films of all time is i shot andy warhol biopic of valerie solanas and like that also makes that critique but that is notably that that film like roger ebert's reassessment of this one came out in the fucking 90s (laughs) it was a lot easier to look back from that point and say this was a art this was an art scene built entirely on like exploiting the poor and queer people living on the streets almost like yeah. the factory runs on ran on their fucking blood basically and yeah. to be able to get that in a film in 1969 at the height of Andy Warhol's like cultural relevance and power is the moment in that in the party scene where when Rico is stuffing as much salami down his pants as he can and one of the people at the party is like why are you stealing food and he's like trying not to answer because he doesn't want to get in trouble or whatever. And she says, "Well, you know, it's free. You don't have to steal it." And he goes, "Oh, it's free, and I ain't stealing." And that's like such a fascinating moment in terms of just how, like, to Rico, a table full of free food means how much food can I take 
and the like social rules of how you're supposed to treat free food and how that doesn't jive with when you're starving <laughs> yes yeah basically also that that person says it's free but in fact clearly the cost of the food is being uh part of their spectacle and being yeah. available yeah. for yeah. their yeah. examination like all the people who keep trying to touch him he th the I, amount of times he says please don't touch me is fucking crazy yeah but 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 he's just an object of of passing fascination to them he's yeah. he's decorative that he's dirty is like amusing yeah yeah i might <laughs> i might share this film's strong negative feelings towards andy warhol <laughs> despite despite enjoying much of his work i might think he was a huge <laughs> fucking cunt I'm not saying Valerie Saladis was right. I, she definitely wasn't. You shouldn't go around shooting people. <laughs> but I appreciate her motives. Hi, I'm Andy Warhol, and you're some kind of marvelous lobster man. Right on. Say, you got any real soup or just this schlock? Dean. Kira. Are you glad that you watched Midnight Cowboy? I am extremely glad that I watched Midnight Cowboy. I had nothing against Midnight Cowboy, but also because, like, you're the only person I know who talks about Midnight Cowboy. You know, I didn't... It's not that I don't respect your opinion. It's just that I know your opinion about hundreds of movies. So for any one of those opinions to stick out and me go, I need to watch that film without other people outside adding to the pile of opinions telling me I should watch a film. It was very possible that... I don't think I would have never watched it. But I could it could have been a long, long time. Like when sometime in my late thirties, I decided to do all the best picture winners or some shit. That that was when I would have. Everybody, everybody out there, start getting on that pile. Yeah, to all other people, I am now on the pile. Midnight Cowboys, fucking awesome. It's one of the best films yeah. I've ever seen, and you should see it too. It's so good. Definitely don't be put off by any reports of it not having aged well. It is only not aged well in the sense that like. The the way the, the way that gay and queer people behaved around each other in the late sixties isn't really the same. It's got the F slur in it like a lot, but like almost exclusively said by queer people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To each other. Yeah, yeah. In which case actually it's quite similar to how <laughs> queer spaces operate today. Yeah, I'm just I'm just imagining you know, if if that word uh, affects you heavily, you might be like, well, that's not cool. But as Dean said, almost exclusively said by queer characters to each other. Yeah. I'm, re I'm really glad that you liked it. It was not just so good, but like it was so much more than I ex ever expected. Like on its face, like the plot is more or less the kind of thing I expected, but the way it's told, yeah. the use of montage, not just in the, the flash back slash forward slash sideways or whatever, like that moment we talked about with the guy, the dead body on the floor, like that's just a brief shot in one sequence of him walking around, but every montage in the film is peppered with moments as powerful. So, so many things that we talked about are on screen for like half a second. Yeah. Because the whole movie is just, it's, it's it's just so full. Yeah, yeah. It's a rich text. Uh, what are we doing next episode? This episode, we watched British New Wave director John Schlesinger's American film about two men living in squalor in New York. Next episode, we'll be watching blacklisted Hollywood director Joseph Losey's British film about two men living in luxury in London. We are watching The Servant. Every time you open a door in this house, he's outside. It's your servants. They're in your house, in your bed. I know all about you. Such a guilty secret. Talk about movies where you're the only person I ever hear talking about it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. My my understanding that it's like what if Jeeves and Worcester where it's like really fucked up. Yeah, yeah, that is basically Which is already is. kind of what Jeeves and Worcester is, but like mostly implicitly. Other than the, 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 the superficial similarities of being about two men who aren't gay? 
right? Uh, up there. <laughs> question mark, question mark. It was uh, it was directed by Joseph Losey, as I said, an American director who was blacklisted for being a commie and went to England. And if it was hard enough being a communist in, <laughs> in Britain in the 60s. <laughs> it was written by one Harold Pinter, the playwright. Oh, he's good. Yes. Of Harold Pinter fame. One of Schlesinger's first short films was written by Harold Pinter. And they were both part of... Pinter wasn't like a kitchen sink realist, but he came up in the same generation. Of no, British, he wasn't. The <laughs> same just... generation of British writers that were called like the angry young men, I think was yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the term yeah. for them. They came up at the same time, but Schlesinger was more, uh, at least initially, on the kitchen sink realist sort of track. And you can see elements of that in Midnight Cowboy. And then Harold Pinter was, I want to be Samuel Beckett and nobody can stop me. <laughs> And he was right. He won the Nobel and everything. He 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 cleared. Like he, yeah. I'm very excited. <laughs> very excited to watch the servant with you. Not least of all because I assume it will be your first introduction to one of my favorite actors of all time, Dirk Bogard. The thing about Dirk Bogard is he's got one of those names where it's like it doesn't sound like a real name. It sounds like you're saying somebody's name wrong. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean. Until next time, I'm Kira Maloney. I'm Dean Buckley. The song was Bushtag by Alexander Nakarada. And this was the Sunday Presents. And a very happy birthday to Brandy Newman. Back in Brooklyn, we got a saying, we're walking here! <laughs> <laughs> Nikki. <laughs>